0: Hello, and welcome to Tradeoffs, a podcast series about how companies are wrestling with sustainability. I'm Ned Salter, head of investment research at Fidelity International, and in this episode, I'm talking to the chief executive of Bayer, the German pharmaceuticals and agribusiness conglomerate. Bayer is one of Germany's largest and oldest companies. It operates globally in over 80 countries and is renowned for its formidable R&D work. But in recent years, it's been dogged by scandals related to the herbicide glyphosate, a liability that came with its purchase of the agricultural giant Monsanto in 2018. Werner Baumann has been chief executive of the company since 2016, and he joined me in the Fidelity studios in London in October. Werner Baumann, CEO of Bayer, welcome to Tradeoffs. Thank
1: you, Ned. Pleasure to be here.
0: Why do you think that people and markets fail to see Bayer as an ESG-friendly stock?
1: Well, we have a number of, uh, uh, let's say, high-profile products that do a lot of good, uh, but some of them uh, are not necessarily recognized as such. Um, yeah, just to give you an example, um, uh, if I look at our most important non-selective herbicide, uh, glyphosate, uh, it has uh, you know, the best, one of the best chemistries, one of the most benign chemistries, it's highly efficacious and at the same time, uh, it drives a lot of uh, your know, sustainability aspects uh, with no-till farming that would otherwise not be possible. Most people don't know about it, so it's very much about us to communicate it better, uh, to engage, uh, you know, to be part of discussions in order to, let's say, progressively um, change that picture. So that people really see what it is that we are doing actually as one of the most or the most sustainable company in that sector.
0: Let's come back to the topic of glyphosate later. Where I wanted to start was on your sustainability targets. And you do have some ambitious sustainability targets. And you classify those targets in two ways, helping people thrive and decreasing your ecological footprint. On the environmental side, we've noticed that most of your ambitions are focused on carbon reduction, and I wondered, why doesn't biodiversity feature more highly?
1: I think we take a very comprehensive approach towards sustainability. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, about three years ago, uh, we developed these very ambitious targets when it comes to helping people thrive with you know, 300 million people that we want to reach and better their lives uh, over uh, the remainder of the decade. And at the same time, Uh, very ambitious sustainability targets. What we have done with them is that we uh, don't have a, let's say, freestanding sustainability strategy, because I think those are mostly bound to fail. Uh, Sustainability has to be totally ingrained into our business strategies, and that's what we have done, which means uh, everything we do goes through a filter of criteria uh, that relate to our sustainability objectives and with that, we want to be a further developing, growing, profitable enterprise.
0: Some of the, the, you know, the herbicides or pesticides that you sell, I suppose, one could argue, are not conducive to, you know, always preserving buyers' you know, f- you know well-to-wheel ecological footprint. Um, And I guess we have seen some impact on animals or on humans. And obviously, Bayer has been at the sharp end of a few uh, legal battles costing the company, you know, quite a a large sum of money in in liabilities and mitigation. It's a lot of money and effort. Um, Why not just get out of those most controversial businesses?
1: So why don't we jointly peel the onion a little bit, literally here? So if you If you look at what our products do, uh, our products uh, are driving better outcomes for farmers and society in uh, a uh, world where we have uh, um, a growing population that needs to be fed. uh, And at the same time, uh, we have um, uh, a planet uh, that we need to bring back in balance. With that, we need to work on better and more innovative and with that more effective ways to farm which means that element of innovation drives higher yields in intensified agriculture in order to free up more space yeah, for yeah, renaturalizing uh, habitats and the like in order to have uh, more biodiversity, uh, in order to have more natural habitats, uh, in order to have more carbon sequestration opportunities compared to a very extensive agriculture. And that is exactly what we're doing with our products, Yeah, being chemistry, being biologicals, uh, being uh, new seed varieties, or digital means that help farmers take better informed decisions in order to scale down their, let's say, Ecologic footprint, and with it become better in regenerative agriculture. Yeah, so it's an outcome-based perspective that we take.
0: So, would it be safe to assume that? Because you've talked about, you know, yield, and yield is obviously a very important topic. Um, you talked about feeding the world. Um, there is an element of of uh, food security, which I think will matter a lot as populations continue to grow. Um, But there is another side to it, which is this angle of biodiversity. And so how would you characterize the trade-off, if there is one in your opinion, that exists between, you know, continually promoting biodiversity and regeneration versus our also social need to to drive,
1: um, you know, greater yield and food security? So we have to solve for one challenge, which is uh, food security. Uh, and sufficient supply for your know, growing population. We have the eighth billion inhabitant on this planet, and at the same time, restoration of natural habitats, yeah, and bringing, as I said earlier, the resource footprint of society back in line with what the planet can restore at any given time, with let's say within a year, yeah. So the way to do that is to find better ways to produce food and feed and do that actually with less input. Less input means less nutrients, precision agriculture plays a role. It means less land yeah, which frees up space for uh, renaturalization, less water and at the same time higher yielding uh, combinations yeah, that uh, are being used by the farmer based on prescriptions that we provide. Yeah? So, uh, which seed to use uh, in which area of your acreage? Uh, which treatment to use? Yeah, when it comes to uh, your fungicides, uh, other products for, for for plant health, and then on top of that, uh, uh, what you do uh, with uh, your fertilizer supply, uh, and uh, how do you improve your water management? Um, which all together needs to bring higher output and at the same time reduce the ecological footprint of farming. Because farming stands for 25% of all carbon emissions worldwide and three-quarters of global freshwater use. That's what you have to do. Okay, so, so to sum it up, this, this
0: relationship between biodiversity and yield is and, not or. We have to do both. And the technologies that you are developing are technologies to um, empower fostering of greater yields while at the same time reducing the ecological impacts that we make as in in agriculture. Absolutely. Okay, calculating improvements in yield should be relatively easy. So buyer can look at an outcome based metric. Um, We've supported farming, we've supported agriculture, we've supported um, enhanced food security by improving yield. It's a little bit more complex, isn't it to calculate your the sum total of the ecological improvements that you make on a year-over-year or decade-over-decade basis? How do you think about that?
1: So uh, uh, two answers to that one. First of all, we have looked holistically at the overall ecological footprint uh, of our business within the industry. And uh, if we look at uh, the the carbon footprint uh, of our business, just to take an example, uh, it accounts about for 2% of the carbon footprint of the entire agricultural inputs industry. We do, however, have an 18% share of that market. So uh, out of the gate, with the stuff that we have been working on over the last decades, we are a very, very sustainable operation relative to footprint versus output. That's at, let's say, at a macro level. Uh, And we are going to improve that uh, status by another 30% by uh, the end of the decade. Now, when it comes to uh, yield only, uh, that would be uh, too narrow a perspective. So what we are looking at is, uh, first of all, uh, already during the development of our products, which products meet uh, uh, all of our standards beyond the regulatory standards when it comes to toxicity. Uh, when it comes to uh, your pollinator friendliness, which means bee safety, uh, when it comes to uh, your safety of application by farmers, and on top of that, uh, your resource management, uh, water management, uh, land management, and so on. I'll give you a couple of examples yeah, to illustrate that. Uh, first, dry seeded rice. It has the same yield, maybe even a little bit higher, but you use substantially less water and substantially less methane emissions. Short-stature corn, on the other side, uh, is a corn variety that doesn't grow that high. Uh, you can plant denser. Uh, they are less susceptible yeah, to flipping over with strong winds. So you preserve uh, what you have planted in terms of yield that is going to come out of it. And it also has a substantially better nutrient uptake uh, and uses less water per, uh, let's say, uh, unit of yield uh, that uh, that you are generating. Yeah, so. What we are doing with our products cuts across a number of criteria when it comes to sustainability and not only one piece, for example, carbon emission reduction uh, versus yield improvement or yield maintenance. Could you argue that
0: if you are very successful in your research and development activities with precision farming, for example, and other technologies that you're working on to support farmers, that that might yield lower revenue for you over time, insofar as people might need to consume fewer consumables. Is there a is there a, a trade off for buyer on in, on this basis?
1: Well, there is certainly uh, the ambition to reduce uh, uh, volume per acre that we are bringing out, while at the same time being as efficacious as today, or even more efficacious uh, in uh, your combating pests, for example. Now, the question is, does that automatically mean that we are going to see lower revenues? Uh, I'd say, from where I sit, uh, not necessarily so. It's actually going to be the opposite. Uh, the way that we are looking at uh, you know, the market uh, and how it's going to evolve and what we are going to bring to the table is that uh, we are progressively moving away from a company that is an input provider towards a company uh, that uh, provides farmers with tailored solutions, Yeah, which means... Uh, Uh, We can help farmers uh, pick the right seed variety in order to optimize uh, their yields uh, and and the quality. Uh, We can uh, provide farmers with specific prescriptions on how to treat their fields in keeping them healthy during the growing season. Uh, we have uh, you know, unmatched agronomic advice capabilities, also with uh, the by far furthest penetrated um, digital farming platform that we have, and we are stringing these all together, also with biological solutions that we have. Uh, You're know, as the biggest uh, provider of biological solutions in the industry. We string it all together for better outcome for the farmer, and the farmer is willing to pay for better outcomes, uh, and he's going to be willing to pay a premium for that yeah because he's going to be paid on that better outcome in terms of quality and yield. yeah, so that that's uh, you know, what we are working on uh, as we speak. and then adding to that specific solutions uh, that will actually put more money into the farmers' uh, uh, wallet, yeah, be it uh, cover crops, uh, be it paying farmers for carbon sequestration. these are additional things that we can offer with the footprint and the reach we have, and we do that as we speak.
0: Okay, so so to sum it up, I su- I suppose you could say you're moving from a, a volume-based business to a value-added based business, and on that basis, it that will drive success that's, for buyers. That's a
1: good way to put it.
0: Okay, tell me a little bit more about farmers, because farmers represent a significant portion of your stakeholders, not just you know shareholders and 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 employees. This is a big part of your community. Uh, you talked a little bit about about their lives. You know, what what trade-offs do they face when thinking about these? investment decisions into new farming technologies and how do you educate them or partner with them and what are the costs that they face when you know signing up for new initiatives
1: the next new thing that provides value added uh, by default is more expensive than the one that you've been using so far and farmers are you're know, very very smart business people uh, so they are willing to go along uh with uh, let's say a show me approach that means uh, you show me uh, that is going to be good for me. Uh, then it's going to be good for you because I pay you, and uh, we have developed different concepts over time. Uh, one thing is of course uh, that um, that standard upgrade of uh, uh, our uh, your seeds, uh, commercial seeds, yeah, which we upgrade uh, every year, uh, which yields uh, uh, then your know, higher uh, productivity for the farmer, and farmers are willing to pay for that if. Uh, your commodity prices are good. So, farmers are trading up in line with their, let's say, earnings opportunity depending on where commodity markets are. Uh, Secondly, uh, farmers are you know, also facing a number of trade-offs uh, in terms of how they operate uh, you know, their businesses, in terms of uh, uh, your protection of the natural habitat, uh, maybe restoration of natural habitat, uh, as we see, uh, for example, with a number of farmers uh, uh, in Brazil. Uh, being paid for that and making that work for them uh, is also part of our mandate, where uh, we can broker some of the value added uh, that farmers can tap into by, for example, uh, generating uh, your carbon credits, yeah, with a certification system for your other businesses that cannot naturally reduce uh, you to a net zero position with their carbon footprint, and these are the things that uh, you are uh, you're characterizing, I think, farmers' life today, where they themselves are also under a lot of pressure by NGOs because of that very high carbon and freshwater and resource footprint uh, that uh, that agriculture has uh, in our overall, your planetary resource consumption. So I guess coming
0: back then to food security, one of the things I'm interested in is the difference between operating in emerging markets and developed markets. And I guess a question for you is, you know, d- does the trade-off between biodiversity and yield—and I know we, you may challenge my supposition on that, which you have fairly—but um, does it become more extreme in places where food is less secure? I.e., are we willing to tolerate, uh, you know, less sustainable farming practices in the near term in emerging markets where food is more scarce immediately, and we have a longer transition?
1: You know, that, that question uh, uh, insinuates that, um, quote unquote, uh, regenerative or, let's say, uh, ecological farming uh, would be advantageous relative to its ecological footprint. Um, I don't think that uh, you know, that, uh, that, that concept uh, uh, is real. Uh, even if you look at the, your uh, FAO and the WHO, what they are saying is uh, in order for us to get into a more sustainable setting with agriculture, uh, you know, the, the name of the game is intensification. Yeah. Intensification means that we have to do quote unquote more with less, get more yield out of less acreage that is being used, uh, and with that substantially higher productivity. That substantially higher productivity can only be uh, achieved with better solutions that uh, you know in some areas are not even available today, and that's what we are working on in the industry. But always, as I mentioned before, within the framework of regenerative farming practices, which means an outcome-based perspective on resource input versus the output we can generate, whilst respecting the planetary boundaries. That is actually something that holds true for developed markets, and it also holds true for developing markets. Now, how to get there and what the next steps are is quite different in developing versus developed markets. Smallholders account for about 80% of all food that is being uh, produced in developing markets. For them to step up their productivity is, of course, critically important for these countries as most of their populations grow. And that's the business that we are in with uh, us working on getting to about 100 million farmers out of roughly 500 million worldwide, which we're going to reach by the end of the decade in order to provide them with better tools to operate their farmland and with that yeah, increase uh, their own livelihood, productivity and with that food security uh, for the populations in the developing world.
0: And are there ways that you might support farmers in emerging markets to make those investments in ways that would be different than you would need to do in a, in the United
1: States, for example? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, In developing markets, uh, it's very much about good farming and good agricultural practices uh, where you know, people do not necessarily know how to optimally operate uh, their farms in order to a uh, get to higher results and b actually protect and further improve the quality of their farmland for example yeah a lot of the answers that we are looking at uh, uh, is sitting in the soil and that is what we can provide for with our agronomic expertise uh, and our products and uh, the training that we can provide either directly or through our partners uh, to smallholders in developing countries, which we do
0: okay, so it sounds like when uh quote unquote selling or partnering with farmers, education plays a large role, regardless yes. of whether it's e m or dm
1: yes, okay.
0: Um, Switching gears slightly, um, another means by which your increase in crop yield um, is with genetically modified or GM crops and, you know, living here in Europe, there is some anti GM sentiment and it remains and even some of our clients have said, please omit GM producers from the portfolios that you manage. Can you talk a little bit about what trade offs there are for those using GM and for those like Europe that wish to remain GM free?
1: yeah so first of all, you know we are a company that caters to uh, the uh, the demands of our customers, uh, and we do that within the frame of products which are accepted uh, uh, also by society. Having said that, uh, the word uh, you know works very, very differently in terms of acceptance of new technologies uh, and what people see uh, in technological advances. If you look at let's say, the traditional GM, and here we are talking about um, you know, plants that have been enhanced in their capabilities with transgenic material, yeah? so a different source mechanism serves with your know, a let 's say a genetic property um, you know, as the source to enhance uh, the target organism organism. Uh, with capabilities that that target organism within its own genome would not be able to develop. Yeah? So that's you know, the classical you know, herbicide tolerance, for example, that we have, or insect tolerance. Yeah? These are transgenic adjustments, uh, and that is a traditional GMO. It has proven to be totally safe over the last 40 years, but uh, there is lack of acceptance, in particular in Europe. It's very much accepted in North America and Latin America. As a matter of fact, if you look at corn, uh, 90% plus is GM. Yeah, uh, Soy, the same. Cotton, the same. Whereas in Europe, things are very different because of lack of acceptance. So Now, new technologies, very different. Um, what we are talking about now with um, gene editing technologies such as CRISPR-Cas is uh, quote-unquote, high-speed breeding, precision breeding by directly uh, changing uh, and switching on and off, uh, or regulating up and down uh, genes with new uh, mechanisms and new techniques. So there's no new material that is being introgressed. In the US, it has been regulated as, let's say, nature identical. There is no difference in the outcome compared to traditional breeding. As actually, since we are in the UK, it's a substantially better place for innovation compared to uh, the European Union. Um, when the new Farm Bill was passed uh, uh, by the British Parliament, uh, the Secretary of Ex said literally, now that we have left the European Union, we can go back and focus on the science. And it related to the deregulation of uh, your gene editing techniques for agriculture. And that's what we have to get to. Yeah? So we have to look at the fact and the science in terms of informing our view what is really going to advance agriculture.
0: So if, if buyer and I suppose many of your customers in Latin America, North America and their consumers believe that GMO is safe um, and beneficial – you know what? What responsibility do you bear as an organization to educate those in Europe to see the benefits, uh, in a, as well as I guess whatever resistance uh, may exist. Yeah,
1: I think first of all, uh, uh, it is very important that we are completely transparent in what we are doing. Yeah, so lack of transparency always breeds suspicion. Yeah, and we do that with our R&D programs. We are the first company of all players in the industry which has opened uh, its dossiers uh, and made them public uh, and put them on the Internet, so people can look and see what we are doing. Secondly, stakeholder engagement early on, bringing people in, letting them participate. Uh, You're having controversial discussions, uh, and then uh, you're... Let's say also helping uh, you know, all of us also because, you know, quite frankly, we as a company, we, all, we have our own biases. yeah Helping us to overcome some of the biases in order to develop a joint view, what the right uh, your tool set is in order to get the job done, e.g. Yeah? E. Uh, more feed, more food, more sustainability. What is the right recipe to do that? uh, And what role do new technologies play? That is the job that we have to do, and we have to do increasingly better, quite frankly. Uh, So we have to, I think, also uh, further advance in it. Many
0: years ago, actually, not even just a few years ago, there were many people who were uh, keen to exclude all metals and mining as bad. Um, And I think it's become quite clear that metals and mining uh, play a very important role in our ability to have a, a just transition towards a more sustainable, you know, power generation um, uh, and, and renewable future. Um, I wonder if nutrition is one of the next transitions. I mean, there are, I think, a, a hundred Nobel laureates have, have written a letter saying, stop being anti-GM. I mean, do, do, is this a
1: possibility? Uh, things are changing for the better. Uh, in many, many, many uh, jurisdictions. Um, I I talked about uh, that great advance uh, that we are seeing in uh, new technology regulation uh, in the UK. Interestingly enough, uh, on the African continent there's a number of countries uh, which are in the process of getting ahead of Europe in terms of embracing safe, new, better technologies. For example, GM so GM technologies are increasingly being deregulated and with that usable uh, in some African countries. And that is actually a very, very encouraging signal. So I think we are making progress. Uh, is it a new paradigm that would be comparable to mining? Yeah. Or let's say you know, the, the way how uh, you know, clean energy is being generated? No, I don't think so. But it is a, let's say it is a path that we are on in terms of developing Uh, and then also deregulating uh, new technologies uh, that get us to better outcomes, uh, both in terms of yield and productivity and sustainability. Okay. I want to
0: talk about risk and what level of risk is acceptable to buyer. And this is, you know, as a business leader, you face risk all the time. you took over the agrochemical company Monsanto in 2018, and with that business came billions of dollars in liabilities associated with the marketing of the herbicide glyphosate under the brand name Roundup. Um, and obviously, that was a costly acquisition, f- both from the write-offs, the write-down, and the liabilities. So, a multi-billion-dollar mistake. And so, as as a as a leader in this industry, and as a, as a chief executive. How much risk are you willing to take, you know, financially or reputationally, to drive the business forward aligned with the goals and the mission of your business, acknowledging that there is some element of unknown or subsequent risk that you might need to take on the release of a new product?
1: So, in terms of uh, uh, risk relative to the safety of product, none. Yeah, none. Uh, we are not in the business of exposing other people to risks that are unacceptable. Which means everything we do uh, means strict adherence uh, to all regulatory uh, uh, provisions that are out there, uh, legal provisions that are out there, and then our own standards, which in many areas are even higher than regulatory standards. So we make hazard-based informed decisions about risks, Uh, We look at uh, uh, things like pollinator safety, we look at application safety in order to make sure that our products can be used and applied safely within the frame of what they are made for. So that's one. Second, um, your business risks, more generically speaking, when it comes to, let's say, fairly big decisions in terms of resource allocation, uh, such as an acquisition. uh, there's there's something that is very very important to us, and that is of course that we uh, do everything that we do based on you know, an informed perspective, and that means with really solid and uh, uh, and, and sufficient diligence prior to taking a decision. Yeah. Uh, still, uh, a risk always remains. Yeah. And then it is about assessing that risk and the likelihood of occurrence. And even though that you might only have a 10% likelihood of occurrence, yeah, it still means that it could occur that risk, similar to uh, the opportunity side. So that's how we are looking at uh, those two categories of risk. Third one, uh, and you mentioned that as well, is reputational risk. We have inherited a substantial reputational exposure with the acquisition on Fusanto. The way we looked at it at the time was that we thought that uh, we could manage that risk based on a very different, much more stakeholder-oriented and inclusive approach that legacy Bayer stood for. And that also worked very well in the beginning up and until uh, that avalanche of uh, glyphosate litigation hit us. So that is a lesson learned uh, from the past because uh, reputation is absolutely key to credibility uh, across all constituencies that we are dealing with, including in front of the courts.
0: Okay, so confidence levels are
1: very high when these decisions are made. Ultimately, yeah, yeah, these are informed decisions with a good perspective of the risk and opportunity assessment that we take. Life is always life-threatening, yeah, and uh, you typically you're in business. Uh, we do that every day. We take decisions uh, under risk and without, let's say, a hundred percent of knowledge. Yeah, at some point in time, uh, that level of uh, information that we have has to be good enough and solid enough to take. A decision. But in most cases, yeah, a residual risk remains. Yeah, And where there's no risk, yeah, you can also safely assume that there's very limited opportunity. On the question of regulation, and
0: given what happened with glyphosate and the EPA regulatory approval, I think Monsanto may have been criticized for being heavy-handed with the regulators. But my question more broadly, how should corporates like Bayer work with regulators to better assess the potential impacts of the products?
1: Well, first of all, let's make sure that roles and responsibilities are clearly understood. Uh, the The role of regulators is to make sure uh, that uh, you know, any product that comes to market, uh, you know, whether it's you know, in, in the pharmaceutical area, uh, uh, whether it is you know, in the car industry, uh, or whether it is uh, uh, in the agriculture industry, um, is safe for its intended use. That's the core role of a regulator. And we have to make sure that uh, uh, we adhere and contribute to a good regulatory system. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe uh, that uh, you know, good regulation is critical uh, to an industry uh, that uh, you know, you know, produces, develops and produces products uh, which uh, need to have a framework within which they can be used safely for their intended use. So uh, uh, our perspective on regulation is uh, that we are a strong proponent of good regulation, uh, which also means that regulation has to be fit for purpose. And it also means it needs to be well understood what regulation does in different fields.
0: And how much should the corporate or the industry be allowed to interface with the regulators? Or does this remain, you know, on the one hand, you can make the argument that, that great collaboration allows you to foster the development of industry leading science um, that can be well accepted. Yeah. But on the other hand, you wouldn't want to be seen to be heavy handed with the regulators in, in encouraging certain outcomes. Uh, look, undue influence
1: on regulators uh, is off limits. To be very clear, it's off limits. We play a role, for example, uh, you know, when it comes to uh, the deregulation of a new product uh, as uh, you know, the company that puts together a dossier in line with the regulatory requirements and that is being handed in. We are, of course, asked to contribute with further answers to questions that may arise and there's going to be dialogue with, uh, uh, with regulators. But roles and responsibilities have to be clear. We are the applicant and there is a prospective approver that has to make its decision within the framework of the regulatory boundaries that that industry and that product and that process is exposed to. give you a couple of examples. Um, uh, when it comes to new and uncharted territory, uh, we have a different way of working together with regulators because uh, new and uncharted means new and uncharted for both sides. And then it is about the regulator to say which level of risk the regulator is willing to take for a new product to be tested during the development pathway. Uh, we happen to produce a, uh, um, uh, or we happen to be in the clinic on the pharmaceutical side with a novel treatment in um, uh, in cell therapy where people who are in the end stages uh, of Parkinson's disease are being treated yeah, with kind of a last resort opportunity and that is live cell material which is being injected into the brain. Yeah, The issue with that is non-reversible. And of course that is a huge hurdle to overcome with regulators. So, uh, we have to do all the preclinical work, uh, we have, of course, we have to go through animal models and so on and so on. Uh, and then the dialogue with regulator starts. Uh, uh, are we, let's say, good enough with what we bring to the table for you to allow us to go into the first tests in men, because you have to do it in order to develop a new, let's say, pharmaceutical uh, product that is going to bring a lot of good things to patients eventually. US and Canada are willing to take the risk because the US and the Canadian regulators are more, let's say, opportunity-driven and willing to take calculated risk. whereas European regulators are much more conservative, which also means we have different um, speeds of product development in different areas of the world where different regulators take different approaches. Yeah, and I think that's the best example on how regulators work with industry, which means in Europe, we are far from having the first patient in these trials, whereas in US and Canada, uh, we have, let's say, a full, very small phase one running.
0: Okay, so that's a very helpful characterization between the relationship of applicant and approver, but uh, to a certain extent it's working together to achieve uh, a certain outcomes for society. And it, it leads me, I think, that example on, on, on the pharma side of the business um, has led me to, a, 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 I guess, a final question that I wanted to ask you, which is, and given that you are in businesses where you're, you're driving forward um, and endeavoring to, to make some challenging decisions to drive society forward, to what extent does the court of public opinion weigh on on your decision making you'll always you know you're in businesses that kind of make people a little bit unhappy and does that on on uh, weigh on your decision
1: making uh that's a very very good question that um without the endorsement uh of society um we don't have a license to operate full stop yeah so we cannot simply sit here and say um we know what's right for you, customers, society, uh, and uh, get out of our way. Yeah? What we have to do is we have to be in constant dialogue, reaching out, uh, being transparent about what it is that uh, we think should be done, uh, how we are approaching things, bringing people in, uh, in order to uh, you know, help them understand what it is that we want to do and ideally also gain acceptance for it. It's not said that that always works. Yeah? We've seen that with uh, GMO, where there's no acceptance in most uh, European markets and uh, that is okay for us. We would love it to be different. We have a different perspective, but we do accept it. And that also means that with that acceptance, uh, it is clear that that is very, very important for us, for our license to operate in other areas in these markets we are, you know, there's more openness to other things that we are doing. Yeah? So markets happen to be different, as I mentioned already, yeah, with some of the technologies which are being uh, very much accepted uh, and very, very important in the Americas versus uh, less of that acceptance uh, in continental Europe.
0: Okay, so a theme from today as well is fostering acceptance in education rather than forcing a set of values on onto onto the customers. Werner Baumann, Chief Executive of Bayer, thank you for coming on Tradeoffs. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening. To hear what our investment team have to say about this interview and to get the broader investment implications of what's been discussed, listen to the Tradeoffs analysis, also on the Fidelity Answers podcast feed. You can read more on this and other interviews with CEOs along with bonus material at your local Fidelity website or at fidelityinternational.com. Check for links in the show notes. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark. With technical support from Adam Sheldrake and Callum Blitz, the editor is Richard Edgar. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied upon by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without the prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.